Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. My name is Michael Bradley, and this is episode 53. I am actually recording this shortly before the end of 2011, but I hope everyone enjoyed their New Year's celebrations, and I want to welcome you all to this, the very first episode of 2012, and also the beginning of year two for the show. It's cool, I think, that we're kicking off the year not only with the beginning of the show's second year, but also what is ostensibly the beginning of the third year for Superman himself. Unfortunately, don't get used to that rate of coverage, because it will never happen again. At least not with the show's current format. I'm actually not sure that's something to be down about, though. I sat down the other day and and did a loose outline of episodes for the next year, and there's just so much good stuff coming up. For a good chunk of the year, we will be sticking with the same types of appearances we've had to this point, that being Action Comics, Superman, the Daily and Sunday newspaper strips, as well as the radio show. But there are a lot of excellent things coming up, as well as some changes and introductions as the character and the franchise continues to evolve and mold itself into the Superman that we all know and love. This and the next two episodes of the show, in fact, all continue to introduce familiar pieces of the mythology, and we will see more and more added in the stories we look at throughout 2012. Just in the two years we've looked at so far, though, Superman has changed quite a bit since those earliest stories. You don't always recognize it, just looking at, you know, one story at a time, but I've spent some time over the last month or so re-listening to some of the earliest episodes of the show, and it's amazing, really, how far the character has come in just those two years. As we saw, the Superman presented to us in Action Comics number one is vastly different than the Superman seen in the, the mind's eye of people today. And two years' worth of stories later, he still is, but he's evolved quite a bit and is already making great strides towards bridging that gap. But in addition to the ever-evolving content of the stories that we cover, I've got some other ideas for the show that I hope I'll be able to enact. And and like with 2011, there'll be a fairly steady stream of guest co-hosts and other fun surprises along the way. I've got high hopes for the upcoming year as far as the show is concerned. So once more, I want to welcome you not just to 2012, but also to this episode and moreover, the thrilling adventures of Superman Year 2. I am optimistic that it will be even better than Year 1, and hopefully you're all looking forward to it as much as I am. On May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames. 
on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The new 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com. So, this episode, we are kicking off the year by going back home to where it all started, in the pages of Action Comics, specifically issue number 25. The issue was released around April 23, 1940, for a price of 10 cents. That puts it coming out just a few days after the end of the Trouble in the Tenement storyline from the Daily Strip, and about a week after the start of the radio storyline that Charlie and I will be looking at next episode. It's got a June 1940 cover date, and our cover shows Superman in midair over a vast body of water, pursuing some crooks who are fleeing by boat and assaulting our hero with a barrage of machine gun fire. Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics credits this cover to Joe Shuster with inks by Wayne Boring, while the Superman Chronicles reprint and the Grand Comics Database credits Boring for both pencils and inks. Either way, it's a great cover, and marks Boring's first Superman credit in the comics. Wayne Boring had been with the Schuster shop for a little while at this point. Um, he is credited with the art for the Federal Man stories in Adventure Comics numbers 42 and 43, and as we've seen, he's been credited with work on the Superman newspaper strip before this. Boring will continue to be associated with Superman for another two decades, eventually becoming the Superman artist until the mid-1950s with an almost unmistakable style. And while here he's clearly sticking closer to the Joe Schuster look for the character, it's great to see Boring's work in the Superman comic books here for the first time. Uh, but the issue was edited by Whitney Ellsworth, and the 13-page Superman story inside was written by Jerry Siegel, with art penciled and inked by Paul Cassidy, and it has been titled Amnesiac Robbers. Our half-page splash shows Superman ripping the wing off of an airplane as it soars above a large body of water. It's not really the greatest splash, to be honest, and again, it 
doesn't have anything to do with the story itself, though that seems to be the common trend. The introductory text has been used a few times before, even as far back as Action Comics number 7, but since I think this is the last time this particular wording is used, and it hasn't been used since Action Comics number 16, let's review. Friend of the helpless and oppressed is Superman, a man possessing the strength of a dozen Samsons, lifting and rending gigantic weights, vaulting over skyscrapers, racing a bullet, possessing a skin impenetrable to even steel. These are his physical assets used in his one-man battle against evil and injustice. Our story opens not in the offices of the Daily Planet, as so many do, but in the offices of the First National Bank, where a messenger is sent to deliver a package of money and papers to a Mr. Galbraith, with the banker stressing that the package must be delivered within 30 minutes. However, 45 minutes later, Galbraith calls the bank, demanding to know the location of the messenger. Shortly later, the police catch up to the messenger and want to know where the money, or what happened to the money. But the messenger claims he doesn't know. He says he remembers leaving the bank with the money, but the next thing he remembers is being confronted by the police. Everything in between is a complete and total blank. At that exact moment, across town, drivers of an armored truck flag down a policeman and claim they can't even remember who they are. After realizing the truck is empty, the officers haul them downtown for questioning. We cut a little while later to the police headquarters, where Clark Kent is turned away from keeping an appointment with the commissioner. Using his superhearing to listen in on the goings-on inside the station, Clark learns of the messenger's amnesia, the missing money, and that these are not isolated cases. Apparently, similar strange occurrences have taken place across the city, but the police have been trying to keep a lid on things to prevent public outrage. With the scoop in hand, Clark takes his leave to return to the Daily Planet. And I like this panel here. As we see Clark saying goodbye to the officer, he says, So long, Pat. I know when I'm not wanted. And the officer replies, Better luck next time, Clark. And both characters are, are smiling, you know, clearly kidding around with one another. I like that they're addressing one, one another by their first names. I doubt we'll ever see Pat again after this story, but... It's one of those little things, one of those little world-building things that gives you the feel that Clark has run into this guy several times. You know, he probably sees him every time he goes to the station on his beat. And I really dig that, rather than Clark being a complete stranger to everyone he meets, except for the supporting cast, which really isn't very authentic. So, Clark heads back to the Daily Planet and types up the story, and his editor immediately puts out an extra blaring the headline, Police Baffled by Amnesia Robberies. At the police station, there's an uproar over the leaked story, and poor Pat gets the blame because it was his job to keep the press away. The uproar also spreads to the mayor's office, where a citizen's delegation demands the administration get to the bottom of it, or the mayor will be out of a job. Meanwhile, back at the paper, Clark happily heads out from work, satisfied with the job well done. And he thinks, for the cherry on his day, he's going to try and score a date with everyone's favorite girl reporter, Lois Lane. What do you say to lunch, Lois? There's so much talk of, about you and me. There's been talk? Really? <laughs> Either Clark thinks Lois is incredibly stupid, 
or Mike the Photog from the radio show has made his way unseen into the comics and is spreading rumors there too. But in any event, Lois, for once having a valid excuse for not wanting to go out with Clark, replies, Sorry, I've arranged for something definitely more important. In a few minutes, I'm to learn the true identity of Superman. As Clark stands slack-jawed, Lois explains that she has an appointment with Medini, the world's greatest hypnotist, and Medini claims he can reveal Superman's identity. So long, Lois says, while I step out to make your puny scoop look silly. As Lois leaves, Clark slips into a nearby storeroom, figuring there must be some connection between Medini, the hypnotist, and the guards with blanks in their memory. Clark switches to Superman and heads out to follow Lois in case she needs help. But as Clark lands outside of Medini's mansion, he's jumped by the welcome wagon, a.k.a. two guards. But the guards are no match for the men of tomorrow, who easily dispatches them and leaves them hanging from a nearby fence. Using his X-ray vision, and no doubt his super hearing, Superman spies inside the building as Medini, upset that Lois is a reporter, because apparently he didn't know before, begins to hypnotize Lois. Via occult methods, I can make Superman's identity known to you. But first, you must stare deep into my eyes. Do you hear me? Listen, and you will hear Superman's voice. And as if from nowhere, a voice that Lois recognizes as Superman resounds through the room. But outside, Superman, also having heard the voice and knowing for sure that it isn't his, uses his superhearing to follow the noise to an upstairs room. Peering inside, he sees Medini's assistant speaking into a radio mic. One busted window later, and Superman confronts the man, putting him in a chokehold and ending the impersonation. Downstairs, Superman's actions interrupt Medini. But it doesn't matter now, Medini says. The girl is completely under my power. I must make her forget that I exist. Back upstairs, Superman continues to trash the assistant's equipment, and after he gets done cowering in the corner, the assistant decides he's had enough and goes after Superman with a wrench. The assistant strikes blow after blow with the wrench against Superman's skull, but is soon disappointed that the blows have no effect and that Superman is merely smiling. Pulling back, the assistant swings one final swing with all his might, cracking the wrench square on Superman's skull only to have it bounce back, clocking himself in the chin, knocking him out cold, and probably giving him a concussion. It doesn't really say. Anyway, with the assistant out of the way, Superman sets his sights on Medini himself, and races downstairs where Medini is working to hypnotize Lois. Startled by our hero's sudden appearance, Medini turns his hypnotic power on the Man of Steel, and forward battles Superman against Medini's hypnotic power. Who will triumph? Despite Superman's mighty strength, Medini's power seems to overcome the Man of Steel, and soon he is rendered helpless before the hypnotist. Medini calls another assistant and orders him to contact the editor of the Morning Pictorial and offers the captive Superman for a price. As Superman struggles to break free from Medini's thrall, the hypnotist leads Lois away. Superman continues to struggle to overcome Medini's power, and slowly, driven forward by Lois's plight, is soon able to overcome the power and stand up. Outside, Medini frees the guards earlier left hanging on the fence by Superman 
and orders them to go guard Superman until the next morning when the pictorial's editor is to arrive, while he goes to pull, quote, the big job, unquote. But inside the house, Superman stumbles, now able to move thanks to his mighty strength, but still weakened and uncoordinated due to Medini's power. As the guards start to run inside, Superman flings himself forward, crashing through the wall of the mansion and into the yard outside. The guards start to flee, but then, noticing Superman's weakened condition, decide to use the situation to get a little payback. The thugs attack Superman, but despite his weakened state, the Man of Steel is able to raise his arm, knocking out both guards with one blow. Superman then races off with hopes to catch up to Medini, but he staggers in his run, still wobbly on his feet thanks to the whammy put on him by Medini. His unsteadiness causes him to crash into a tree, and then, as he tries to leap to the top of a nearby building, he overshoots and flings himself high into the air. Thankfully, Superman is able to grab hold of a church steeple to stop his flight and pause to collect himself. If only I could free myself from Medini's spell, he says, but something seems to be oppressing my mind like a heavy weight. I just can't think straight. Meanwhile, Medini and the still-hypnotized Lois board a transport plane, which is apparently carrying a huge shipment of gold to Fort Knox in Kentucky. Um, the vault had been receiving gold shipments for about three years at this point. I'm not sure how newsworthy it still was in 1940, but still it's interesting to see Siegel reference something real-world like this, since the majority of the people and places in the stories to this point have been fictional. So the plane takes off, and, well, before I forget, why they're allowing passengers on the plane when they're hauling such a valuable cargo isn't said. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, and I'm thinking that it's just a plot hole. But anyway, the plane takes off, and 15 minutes into the flight, Medini offers to entertain the passengers with some of his magic in order to relieve the boredom of the flight. With all eyes on him, Medini begins his spell and within minutes, all of the plane's passengers are under his thrall. Medini then makes his way to the cabin and hypnotizes the pilot before commanding him to land the plane near the entrance of a large cave. After Medini's men empty the plane of the gold, but not her passengers, Medini orders one of them to take the plane back into the air, then jump out and let the plane crash into the rocky mountainside. We then cut back to Superman, who is still struggling to break completely free of Medini's control. But suddenly, he's hit with an idea. Superman then leaps up, up, and away into the stratosphere. As the thinner air of the atmosphere clears Superman's mind, he abruptly changes course, heading back down to Earth. Once on the ground again, he dashes off to Medini's home, where he grabs one of the guards and demands to know Medini's whereabouts. Scared out of his wits, the guards tell Superman Medini's plan, and we soon find Superman making a mad dash against time to catch up to the plane. In the air, Medini's thug jumps from the plane, and it begins to plummet downward. Seeing the falling plane, and assuming Lois must be on board, because, hey, what's a falling plane if Lois isn't in trouble, right? Superman streaks into the air, grabbing the plane, and lands again on the ground, gently setting the plane down without a scratch. As Superman works to unload the passengers including Lois, Medini and his thugs attack, and our hero responds by picking up the plane and throwing it at them, causing Medini and all his men to die in a fiery explosion. Seriously. 
Shortly, Superman alerts the authorities to where they can find the passengers and the gold, then returns to the paper to write up the story. Later, the mayor thanks Taylor for cracking the mystery of the amnesia robberies, thus guaranteeing his re-election. And Clark whines about how they're forgetting that it was his story that broke the case, and Lois reminds him that the real credit should go to Superman. The end. Or is it? (laughs) No, it really is. What a fun story. Really and truly, I just enjoyed the ink out of this one. It didn't give me the the vibe of Adventures of Superman like some stories have, but I can definitely see this plot playing out well in the show, given the nature of the stories they told there. I like that we saw Superman facing off against a threat that really got the best of him. I mean, Medini puts the whammy on him, and it's five pages later before we see Superman fully back on his feet. Five pages of a 13-page story. So, what, 40%? And we've not seen anything like that in stories to date. And in fact, we've not seen much posing a physical threat at all to Superman. Uh, the Ultra-Humanite and Luthor have both pulled a few tricks that, you know, knocked him for a loop, but nothing to this extent. So, I really enjoyed seeing that. And I like that Siegel didn't just have Superman, you know, laying around for five pages, but instead we actually see him fighting back, struggling to overcome the hypnotism. And the writing and the art are both very visual. Well, I guess art is always visual, but it's it's well done in that you, you really get a feeling that Superman is struggling to and working to clear his mind. After he first pulls himself up, while he's still in Medini's mansion, we get a sequence where we see Superman flinging himself across the room, then crashing very ungracefully through the wall. And in the next panel, he's just sitting in the yard, all hunched over, holding his head. It's really great. And I'll be sure to scan that whole sequence for the show notes. I I do love a powerful Superman, but at the same time, I like seeing things that can take him down from time to time when it's done properly. And, And you see Superman actually struggling to overcome it rather than it just being a a crutch where it keeps the hero on the sidelines until the last page when he suddenly overcomes it. And I'm happily or happily I'm happy that Siegel is playing with that and we'll see how much he continues to do that as we, you know, continue to go forward in the stories. So not only is this the very first time that Superman is confronted by magic, we also have another first in this story, and really, to my mind, a more important one and that this is the very first time that Lois Lane tries to suss out who Superman is. She doesn't suspect Clark here. That's something that won't come for a short amount of issues yet. But, man, it's great seeing yet another iconic part of the mythology added in. Superman may have started out slow, but lately there have just been more and more of these iconic pieces being added to the puzzle, which is very awesome. Unfortunately, though, by the end of the story, Lois seems to have completely forgotten about the mission to find Superman's true identity. Maybe Medini's spell made her temporarily forget, or maybe she just didn't seem to find it worth mentioning at the time. Either way, it's definitely not something that's going to go away forever, which should be obvious if you're familiar with the common Superman tropes. Of course, this does answer the question that I think John Byrne is famously 
credited for asking about when Superman was dumb enough to tell people that he had a secret identity. Simple explanation, he didn't. Medini said he did, Lois believed it, and no matter how hard Superman and Clark tried to convince her otherwise, Lois never gave up the idea that it was true. And no, that's not a canonical explanation, but it would it would definitely work, so there you go. The thing that annoys me most about this story is the end. Again, we have Superman killing. He kills at least three people because the narrative box talks about Medini and his henchmen, plural, which would indicate at least two. And, of course, Clark is rather whiny in the last panel when he says, To listen to them, you wouldn't guess it was my story to break, that broke the case. But I, I could just be reading the wrong tone into that. Other than that, though, all in all, just a, a really great story. I really... I really, really did enjoy this one. This is the third issue in a row of Action Comics that has been strong, and I I hope that's a trend that continues. The art is okay, I guess. Not great, but, but definitely not the worst that we've seen. It actually gets worse as the story goes on, so I don't know if Cassidy was just rushed at the end or what, but overall it's it's average, I guess, for what we've seen around this time. I do note that the editor, George Taylor, has a more defined look than in previous stories. In all the stories, both in comics and the newspapers until now, the editor has had a very bland... There's just been very little distinguishing about him. And to be completely honest, he hasn't even had a real consistent look from artist to artist. Uh, Time and more stories will tell, but I can't help but think that this is intentional given the radio show where the editor, even though it's Perry White there and not George Taylor here, is a much bigger part of the narrative. As for Superman's costume, again we're seeing the bigger S on Superman's chest, and I think that's pretty much here to stay at this point. Um, It won't be in every story and cover from here on out, I know, but I think we've reached a point where it's the norm rather than the exception. It's a red, slightly stylized S on a yellow field with a red border. Pretty much the now-traditional S-shield, just slightly less detailed. The shield on Superman's cape is missing in all but a few panels, where it's styled the same as his chest shield. If you're interested in reading the story, it's only been reprinted twice, which is unfortunate because, like I said, it's it's a really fun story. But in any event, if you want to read it, Like so many of the recent comic book stories, you can find it in Superman, the Action Comics Archives, Volume 2, and Superman Chronicles, Volume 3. And speaking of, the Superman figure from the cover of this issue was isolated and used on the cover of of that third Chronicles volume, so it should be pretty easy to spot. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books 
in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. Other features in this issue of Action Comics included Pet Morgan, The Black Pirate, The Three Aces, Tex Thompson, Clip Carson, and our old pal Zaytara in a story called The One Man Crime Wave. There is no Action Comics Monthly Book Review in this issue. Instead, there's a text story by Gardner Fox. I'm not sure why they left out the book review, or <laughs> at this point, even if it continues, but we'll see. But we've also got a half-page ad for Superman on the radio. It's the same style ad that was in Action Comics number 24, just with a couple more radio stations listed. There is WOL in Washington and WFBR in Baltimore. So it's good seeing Superman make his way down the coast. The ad also says the show is sponsored by the makers of Force, rather than the H.O. Oats as it was before. Both Force and H.O. Oats were made by the, the Hecker Company. H.O. Oats was a hot breakfast cereal, basically oatmeal, where Force was a cold wheat flake cereal. So since we're getting into summer now, they've swapped out the sponsorship on the ad. There's also a full-page ad for Superman number 5, which we'll be looking at in just a couple episodes. Attention! Calling all Superman fans. Another issue of brand new Superman Adventures, never before published. On sale about May 10th at all newsstands. Watch for it. And I love these ads. It's pretty much the same ad every time, and it's very simple at that. But it's fun seeing, you know, this giant image of the cover and, and the copy... They're very excited about each issue, you can tell. And finally, at long last, in the Superman of America page, we have the winners of the gigantic Superman contest, which was first announced in Action Comics number 20. To enter the contest, you had to write in 100 words or less what I would do if I had the powers of Superman. There were all sorts of prizes involved, including the famed Superman of America club ring, which was actually a six-tier prize. There were all sorts of prizes involved, including the famed Superman of America Club ring, which was actually the sixth-tier prize. The top three letters were the first tier, and then the next five were the second, 
the next 10 were the 3rd, the next 100 were the 4th, the next 288 were the 5th, and then the 6th, which was the ring, were awarded to the next 1,600 best letters. Due to space limitations, they didn't list all 2,006 winners, just the top four tiers, which was 118 names, and due to limitations of me not wanting to read all 818 of those, I'm not. But congratulations to first place winners Harold Ringler of Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, Jack Scherter of Omaha, Nebraska, and Polly Benjamin of Lynbrook, New York. I really hope you enjoyed your typewriters. Yay! In all seriousness, while the Superman of America ring is obviously the most valuable item today, I'm sure in 1940 a typewriter was a great prize. Uh, Looking over the list of winners, they really seem to be spread out throughout the entire U.S., and there's even a few from Canada. I didn't see any listed from my hometown or or the town I live in now, but there is one from Cleveland, a Richard Falkhammer, which kind of makes me wonder what the odds are. I mean, I know Cleveland's a big town, but it makes me wonder what the odds are that he knew Jerry or Joe or, or someone in their family. But the page also has the usual Superman secret message, which can be decoded using code Uranus, number six, on your Superman of America Club decoder. And the message is, good deeds are the true badge of Superman membership. Other books from DC. It was really an awesome month. We had More Fun Comics number 55, which saw the end of Bart Toomey's Bulldog Martin and the beginning of Dr. Fate by Gardner Fox and Howard Sherman. Dr. Fate is Kent Nelson, son of archaeologist Sven Nelson. After Sven's death at the tomb of the ancient wizard Nabu, Nabu's spirit eventually bestows upon Kent the mystical helmet, amulet, and cloak, and Kent fights crime as the mystical Dr. Fate. Dr. Fate is a character that I have never really read much of outside of his appearances in books where you know, Superman or, or the Justice League is involved. He has gone through a number of incarnations throughout the years and even had an appearance on Superman the Animated Series in 1997 and more recently on Smallville and Young Justice. Sadly, Dr. Fate is not on the cover of this issue of More Fun Comics, but it does give the title its second major hero alongside Jerry Siegel's and Bernard Bailey's The Spectre. But other books besides More Fun Comics number 55... We also had Detective Comics number 39, with the last Slam Bradley strip, illustrated by Dennis Neville. The strip continues with a new artist and Jerry Siegel still writing, I believe, next issue. Adventure Comics hits its 50th issue with a very cool Our Man cover by Bernard Bailey. It shows Our Man chained from a pipe uh, hanging above two barrels of TNT with a wall of flame edging ever closer. And behind him in the background you see two villainous-looking types making tracks running out of the room. All-American Comics number 15 and Flash Comics number 6 also came out, the latter with a really awesome Flash cover by Everett E. Hibbard. John said last episode how much he'd been enjoying the writing on the Golden Age Flash stories, and if this is an indication of the art, I will definitely have to check them out. Both of these comics also now sport the DC Bullet, even though technically they were still all-American books at this time, I think. 
I'm not really sure on that. Uh, the relationship between AA and DC is all very murky at this time. But outside of DC, Marvel and Timely had two books, uh, but nothing much of note there or in any other books from other companies. However, there was one more book from DC, without a doubt the biggest comic book of the month, and that was Batman number 1, the second title from DC to be focused on one single character. And this issue features four brand new Batman stories, and historic tales at that, as they feature the very first appearance of the Joker and Catwoman, even though in this issue she's simply called the Cat. It's a very, a very, very awesome issue. On a related note, co-creator of the Joker and legendary comic creator Jerry Robinson passed away on December 7, 2011, at the age of 89. While Robinson had really nothing to do with Superman stories from this era, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that comic books would be a very different place without Robinson. Uh, Robinson had a large hand in the creation of both Robin and the Joker, and was largely responsible for shoring up the look of many of the earliest Batman stories. The true extent of his influence in the stories, honestly, it may never be known. But even outside of comics, Robinson had many more credits, including serving 10 years as president of the National Cartoonist Society and the Association of American Editorial Cartoonists. And in the 70s, he wrote a very in-depth study of the history of newspaper comic strips in a book called The Comics. But as far as Superman goes, he will be most remembered for what he did for Superman's creators, because it was Jerry Robinson along with artist Neil Adams, that spearheaded the rally to draw support for Siegel and Schuster in the mid-70s, which ultimately resulted in DC restoring their credit for the first time in 30 years and guaranteeing a lifetime stipend for both creators. Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster created Superman, but we have Jerry Robinson among those to thank for making DC remember that today. Let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com.
Presenting Supergirl's Cosmic Adventures, a podcast dedicated to the continuing adventures of the maid of might herself, Supergirl. Episodes can be found at supergirlpodcast.blogspot.com. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of the episode. I want to thank you all for joining me this time, and once again, I want to welcome you to 2012. Next episode, Charlie Niemeyer will be back, and we'll be looking at the sixth storyline from the Superman radio serial, which features the introduction and first appearance anywhere of a very well-known member of Superman's supporting cast. I also want to remind you about my appearance on Charlie's Superman in the Bronze Age. That was episode 37, which should still be among the most recent episodes when you hear this, so definitely check it out. Be sure to stop by the website for this show at greatcrypton.com. There you will find show notes and back episodes of the show. I'm also striving to start posting more content there on a regular basis. I've actually set that as one of my goals for this year, and I really want to get back to that or get to that because I've never really done it the way I wanted to. But anyway, keep an eye on the site for some non-show but still Superman-related stuff and hopefully the very near future. Still, right now, the site will give you the RSS feed and the iTunes link if you want to subscribe to the show directly. You'll also find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as the email address, which is thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Also, let's not forget about the Superman homepage, as well as the Superman podcast network. Updates are posted at both sites whenever I have a new episode, so be sure to visit both sites. And last but not least, don't forget to check out Green Lantern's Light, my other podcast, which I co-host with Jeffrey Taylor and J. David Weeder. That's a monthly show looking at Green Lantern books from 1983 forward, and you can find that at GreenLanternsLight.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster in his copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, folks, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. As for Superman's costume, again, we're seeing the bigger S on Superman's chest. I think that's pretty much here to stay at this point. Um, I, I know it's not going to be in every story and cover from, from here on out, but I, I think we've pretty much reached a point where it's, it's, the, uh, it's the norm rather than not the norm. If that, 
I'm really bad at ad-libbing things. 